This is the sidebar for the week of October 13th, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. One thing you just want to be a little bit careful about is is looking at points in the Dow or points in the S&P versus percentages. Um, The number of points of that Black Monday you're talking about in 87 was not that many, but as a percentage of the market, it was rather uh, tumultuous. This week, we're joined by CNBC senior reporter Steve Leisman for a crash course on economics as we focus on how the Federal Reserve and stock market impact the national economy. Steve Leisman, as the senior economics reporter for CNBC, we want to get a better understanding of how the economy works, what makes the stock market move. So let me begin with that. What drives the market? I think the simplest way to think about what drives the market is expected earnings. Uh, People are buying shares and ownership of companies, and they are buying stocks relative to what they think these companies will earn. There are different components of this. The first is the earnings they make, and then there are things like dividends that companies pay out. So there are are people who buy stocks because of the dividend they throw out, but also for capital appreciation, in other words, the stock going up because they believe that there will be future earnings. And when stocks go down, inevitably it has to do with uh, expected uh, declines in earnings. And there's all kinds of things that roll around that and flow through that, things like the economy, how the economy is doing, uh, things like tax policy, uh, and things like interest rates are set by the Federal Reserve. But all of those boil down to the expected effect that investors believe they have on the outlook for earnings. Based on that, do the policies here in Washington, either by the president or by Congress, move the markets? They certainly do. Um, and, and there's a lot of expectation in uh, the policies uh, or from the policies that are expected out of Washington. How much of that is built into the market and how much the market is sensitive to the uh, ups and downs and the higher and lower chances and odds of those policies being enacted, it's a matter of debate. Um, You know, what we do see when we look at the tail of the tape of the market since uh, the election is it's gone pretty well straight up, 24 25% for one of the better rallies that we've seen over a period of time like that in in many, many decades, actually. Um, And how much of that is the expectation of policies from the Trump administration? Well, in the middle of that uh, rise, we had also some really higher earnings numbers were posted by companies. So that was a piece of it, too. Um, Another important piece of it is not just – earnings here in the states, but a lot of the uh, biggest companies that make up the indices are, 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 are multinational companies. And so one thing we've seen over the period of time in which the market has risen has been a, an increase in overseas growth and overseas earnings by these big multinational companies like um, IBM or JP Morgan or Apple, for example. Um, when those foreign economies do better, the uh, those U.S. big multinational companies do better as well. But it, getting the right policy seems very important. And uh, the, the, the best uh, uh, analysis is that the market likes the potential policies that are coming from the Trump administration, or at least being proposed by them. Does the Fed have any impact in 
the markets moving in any way, either up or down? The Fed has a huge impact, and I can tell it in maybe the simplest way and then in maybe a more complex way. Um, so the simple way is that um, when the Federal Reserve is lowering interest rates, it's trying to stimulate the economy. And the expectation among investors generally is that that stimulation of the economy will lead to better economic growth, um, and so earnings will do better. One way to think about all of this is – the, is think of a pie, um, and the growth of the economy or the size of the economy is the whole pie. And corporations, their earnings is a slice of that pie. And that slice of that pie can be bigger or smaller, but over time, companies make more money relative to the whole overall economy, and sometimes they make less money. Right now, we've been living through a period of time when companies are making more money relative to the size of the economy. So the slice of the corporate pie has been larger. It's interesting to think about that from a political standpoint in part because one of the big complaints out there and one of the things that's motivated the political dynamic we're in is uh, sort of vast dissatisfaction with wages. Well, the other piece of the pie that's left when corporations take there is the wage or labor part of the pie. So that's another sort of big political economic dynamic. Now, to tell the more complex story is people or investors think about their potential returns on stocks relative to what's called the risk-free rate or the rate of treasuries from the United States government. And if you think about it, if the return is low, in other words, the Federal Reserve has driven down interest rates, then stock values get higher because people expect more or higher returns relative to the stocks, relative, sorry, relative to risk-free rate return than they would otherwise get. When interest rates get higher, think about it for yourself. If I have a choice between getting 5% on a risk-free bond or putting it in the stock market, I might put it into the bond. But if treasuries are very low, for example, where they are right now, about just a 2.3% yield, well, i got to find better yield someplace, so I'm more likely to put it into the stock market. I asked this next question uh, tongue-in-cheek. In trying to understand Fed speak, I don't know if there's a class in college that can train journalists uh, like you who cover the Fed, but how do you decipher what the, the Fed chair is saying, whether it's Janet Yellen or mm -hmm. one of her predecessors? Well, it's kind of interesting because my formal training is as a uh, English literature major, and, you know, reading Kafka and uh, Saul Bellow and uh, some of the great <laughs> writers um, has been pretty good training for this job. Um, you you take the words they say very uh, very seriously, and when they leave a word in or take a word out, you know they're you know that they know you'll notice that. And so there's this messaging that's going on with the words they use. If they said that the, for example, the um, unemployment was uh, very weak, and then they take out the word very, well, that would indicate that there's they see some form of improvement in the unemployment rate. Um, and the same thing has to do with inflation uh, was high for a period of time, and now it's just high. So they, they make these, these linguistic changes, and they're very, very deliberate. They know there are people like me that are reading every word and also looking at um, the uh, words that they said before. One of the things we do a lot of is we use the, uh, the uh, document comparison. When the Fed puts a statement out, we put the two documents in, the, the current statement and the former statement, and we look at what words they put in there and what words they took away and how they changed them, and those are clues to what the Fed is trying to signal. 
Janet Yellen, of course, is the face of the Fed, but there's also the Board of Governors. So what is her role? What are her responsibilities? How do they differ from the governors? And then I want to ask you about her own future. So the um, Federal Reserve is divided up into two different pieces. There's the Federal Reserve Board, and then there's the Federal Open Market Committee. The Federal Reserve Board is a they're appointed by the president or nominated by the president and approved by the Senate. The Federal Reserve, um, the Open Market Committee is a subset of that or is, is another piece of that that sets monetary policy. And the FOMC is made up of both the Board of Governors and the regional bank presidents. It's a very complicated structure. But if you think about the history of the United States where there has been a lot of um, ambivalence or uh, reluctance to have a national or essential bank, this was created at the uh, turn of the 20th century with um, a series of checks and balances where there wasn't so much concentration in, in Washington or so much concentration in New York. Those were the two power structures they were trying to uh, temper. Um, and, and then there's, there's uh, re these regional banks around the country, and they have a rotating voice in this. So there are board of governors, and there are um, – there are bank presidents, and the bank presidents sit on the FOMC, which sets rates or sets monetary policy. The uh, Fed chair is the person in charge of the Board of Governors and also in charge of the FOMC or the Rate Setting Committee. So that person is, I mean, the easier shorthand way to think about it is probably the most powerful financial person in the world. And Janet Yellen's term expires in February. That's significant because of the timing of when the Fed chair is renominated or departs, correct? Yeah, well, um, the Fed chair has a four-year term that is, um, there's a word for this, but it's not coterminous or doesn't go exactly along with the, uh, the term of a president, so that every president will have an overlap from the Fed chair, so it's not a strictly uh, overlapping period. And um, so uh, Yellen's term is up. Uh, the end of January, a new term will start in, in, in February, and we are all uh, waiting, uh, I guess, quite literally on the edge of our seats for who Donald Trump will nominate or will he renominate uh, Fed Chair Janet Yellen. How has she done on the job? Does she enjoy it? Has she made her mark as the Fed Chair? I, I think she enjoys it. Um, I think she's made a mark. What's really interesting is you see this happen quite a bit um, uh, in that uh she was known as being a person who was very reluctant to raise rates. So that's what people thought about her. Um, I thought that was untrue, but that's what the market thought. And uh, Janet Yellen is the person, first, first uh, Fed chair to raise rates in 10 years. Um, and, of course, uh, maybe you know that the Federal Reserve also took several extraordinary actions in the wake of the financial crisis, including buying trillions of dollars of uh, treasuries and government bonds to drive down interest rates. Um, they're uh, number of uh, the, the, the number the amount of assets that they own went from under a trillion dollars to four and a half trillion dollars um, and that was all in the wake of the financial crisis they kept that massively swollen balance sheet in place until uh, just this month we are in the month where the Federal Reserve is going to be for the first time reducing the size of that balance sheet so Yellen is the one who has reversed those policies she's doing it very gradually in a way trying not to disappoint uh, the stock market or the bond market or the economy. And so far, so good. If, if you gauge her on her, on what she's done to reverse the policies of the financial crisis and doing so in a way that hasn't really disrupted either markets or the economy, I think you'd probably give her a pretty good grade. I want to break this down even further, Steve Leisman. First of all, 
What makes up the Dow components? What is the S&P? And what makes up the NASDAQ? So there are um, 30 companies that are part of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and those are determined by a board that is uh, appointed or picked by the uh, members of the leadership of the Wall Street Journal. And those are your biggest multinational companies, not necessarily the biggest, but the ones that they feel are the most representative of the economy. So Microsoft and Apple are in there. Nike and Walt Disney are in there. Goldman Sachs and Home Depot, Walmart and Chevron. Most of your household names are the 30 that are in there. The S&P 500 are simply the biggest 500 stocks uh, by market cap. Uh, so that's a more of a mechanical type of thing. I think there's other criteria in there. And the NASDAQ 100 are a series of the biggest um, uh, tech stocks. Do you remember Black Monday 30 years ago, 1987? Sure. I was a reporter at the Sarasota Herald Tribune, and I wrote a series of stories on it uh, from them. Sure. What happened, and what are the lessons from that day and that period? Uh, well, I mean, I'm not sure anybody can say definitively, but there was a series of things that were going on. We were in a post-tax reform environment. We were in a, a very sort of positive uh, stock market environment. Um, I believe we had a new head of the Federal Reserve just then. And, uh, I mean, I think the only absolutely true thing I can say about that is people walked in and lost confidence that there was somebody there to buy the stock they held at the same or a higher price. And so they sold and the selling uh, escalated and it careened and it was down. I, I think my, the number I remember off the top of my head is 134 points on the Friday. And then obviously you had the big plunge on the Monday. Um, and it was one of those things of cascading lack of confidence in the market. I, I know that may sound uh, uh, sort of, uh, more complex than it is, but people just lost faith. But what's remarkable about that, Steve Leisman, is that you mentioned a couple hundred points, uh, the market plunged. That now has become the new norm. We've been seeing some really wild gyrations over the last couple of years. Well, um, Steve, I need to correct you a little bit on that, which is one of the amazing things about the current market. I know you said the last several years, but one of the amazing things about the current market over the past, say, year or so is the actual lack of volatility. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have the data right in front of me, but we have not had that many huge swings. And one of the amazing things is the market doesn't seem to fall very much. We, you, you, get, you get these times where it will fall a little bit and money seems to rush back in uh, at least over the past year uh, or, or at least since the election, there's been very little volatility. One thing you just want to be a little bit careful about is, is looking at points in the Dow or points in the S&P versus percentages. Um, the number of points of that Black Monday you're talking about in 87 was not that many, but as a percentage of the market, it was rather uh, tumultuous. Good point. I mean, I guess what I was saying, though, is that if you see the market might be up 120 points one day, may drop, you know, 75, 100, 150 another day, and then kind of bounce back. So those numbers might scare some people who remember 1987. But what you're saying is that's not necessarily uh, feasible no. for what we're dealing with today. Yeah, follow the percentage. And, and it's it's actually one of the things that scares people about this market is the lack of volatility. They would sure like to see the market be a little more volatile and be able to express itself in both directions and they feel a little better about the current level of the of the market i mean we basically hit new records for the dow jones every day um 
and uh, it, it, it's concerning. People, you know, you 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 look down and you're a little bit further from the ground every day, and nobody's quite sure where the right level is. And what people are trying to do right now is factor in what the odds are of tax reform, and if tax reform passes, what that means for earnings, what it means for the overall economy. Um, they're trying to figure out the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve is on a course right now of raising interest rates, um, but doing so very gradually. And one of the unique things about the world we live in right now, which you know I hate to say this time it's different, but it sure does feel different, is the Fed doesn't see itself really raising interest rates very far at all. Um, they're thinking like they're going to end up around 3%. 3% was the bottom of the interest rate cycle in previous recessions. The Fed would cut down to 3%. Now they're talking about going up to 3%. And there's a lot of thinking, Steve, about how the world is different and why that is. And in this globalized world, in this world of expanding technology, the thinking is that uh, inflation is something that will remain low for a very long time. Um, and that that will enable the Fed to stop raising interest rates at a very low level. And, and that outlook is one that is very positive for stocks. Based on what you just said then, do foreign markets have uh, a big impact or a minimal impact on the U.S. markets? Or does it well, depend? It's a good question. It depends a little bit. During the financial crisis, um, what was going on in European markets were leading, led the U.S. sometimes. Um, the U.S., of course, right after the financial crisis, led everybody down. Um, and uh, that, that goes, leadership goes back and forth. In general, the U.S. Is the, are the biggest, most liquid markets out there. Everybody kind of wants to be here, in part because of the liquidity, the ability to get in and out without really changing price is a definition of liquidity that people follow. Um, and and that's, that's very significant. Um, and what's more important here is, is the foreign growth. There's been a turnaround in Europe and a turnaround elsewhere in the United States, in, in, in other parts of the world, in Asia, where we've seen growth. And that foreign growth helps the U.S. And that helping of the U.S. also helps the multinationals. So I think maybe one of the undersung uh, uh, heroes of the recent stock market rally is the foreign portion of this. And the U.S. Data or economic growth has also been a little bit better with a huge asterisk that we haven't quite figured out how much the three hurricanes that have uh, hit the mainland are going to hurt the uh, economy. But the overall feeling is the market's looking through those hurricanes. And the feeling is we're doing growth that's a little bit above where it was before. Can you wrap your head around a $20 trillion debt, how much money that is, and whether or not that has any impact on the economy or the markets? So... I think I'm going to disappoint you in saying I'm one of the people out there that's a little bit less concerned about the debt level um, than most people are. Twenty trillion sounds like a big number, and, and it is a big number. But remember, it's also an 18 or a 19 trillion dollar economy, and I forget what the number is. I can actually look it up while I'm talking to you. But the total value of all the assets in the United States are several multiples of that. Um, the bigger concern I have is not the current debt. It's the future obligations of the U.S. government when it comes to um, paying retiree, uh, paying retirement costs and paying medical costs. One thing I'd like to tell listeners is just be a little bit skeptical when you have a newsreader come on and say 20 
trillion, and they emphasize the T. Well, you know, it doesn't mean anything if you don't put that in context. It's a 18 or $19 trillion economy, and um, I think the actual debt held by the public is something below that level. Um, and so I, I am not personally concerned with the level of current debt. I'm concerned with the trajectory that we're on where the growth of our debt should be equal to or less than the growth of our economy. And it's one of the things that concerns me a bit about the current tax cut proposal is that it will ingrain some trillion dollars of additional debt into it and rather than paring it down. And, and, and it's not even that I doubt our ability to pay for that debt. I think we have ample ability to pay for our debt and ample ability to grow. But what worries me is that there will come a time we'll have another recession and it will be helpful to spend more um, and uh, we'll, we'll not have that ability because we haven't taken the good times here to reduce the debt. Um, but just be a little careful because um, over history, it's not clear that some level of debt to GDP is something that's untenable. Uh, during the 19th century, for example, uh, the, uh, the British pound was the currency of the world, and Britain routinely ran debt to GDP levels of 300 percent. Japan is currently at 200 percent. So people like to scare other people with the level of debt. I need people should instead put it into a little bit of context. You have the interesting position of being in New York, covering Wall Street, covering the economy for CNBC, and also here in Washington quite often covering the Fed. So when you talk to investors on Wall Street, when you talk to economists, what do they ask you about Washington, Washington policies, and this administration? Can I say on the podcast, the biggest question I get is, WTF is going on? <laughs> you can say that. Be, yeah, it tends to be the biggest question I get from people. Um, Funny, we get the, that as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I think you'd probably better answer that question than I can. I, I can tell you that this administration is acting and creating economic policy in a way that is never, I've never seen in the time that I've been covering economic policy in Washington. Um, uh, it seems very much to be on the fly. It seems to be very much be chaotic and without a whole lot of process. Um, so it's really hard to uh, to kind of follow. It's it's an interesting story. I mean, imagine you wake up one Sunday morning and the president has tweeted out that he's going to slap 25 percent tariffs on our biggest trading partners. And and I mean, that is a major policy move that in the past, if a president was thinking about that, well, the Treasury folks might call you in and tell you, well, the president's thinking about this, and, and this is why we're going to do this, and, and, and here's the president's authority to do this. Instead, what happened, and I remember this very, very, very distinctly, it was early on in the administration, the president tweets out that he's going to slap these 25% tariffs on there, and, and nobody, none of the advisors, his economic advisors, had known about this. And none could even answer the question to me as to whether or not the president had the authority to do that. Um, and so policy is made in an interesting way. There was a day, um, or I forget when this was, when I know that the folks at the Treasury were kind of deliberately uh, putting together a tax cut proposal, and the president said, we'll have something for you in two days. And they were completely not ready for it. So, um, <clears throat> pardon me, I, I, I don't know what I can tell you. I know that we're, it, it, it's a, it's a fun, if exasperating story to cover. It's an interesting story to cover. It looks a little bit like they have their act a little bit more together when it comes to this tax cut proposal. There are 
two serious people, the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and Gary Cohn, the um, National Economic Council director, um, who seem to be on top of this process. It seems they'd be a little bit more, but the extent to which they're coordinated with the president and the White House uh, is, is unclear to me and unclear to many. How did somebody who graduated from SUNY Buffalo, earned his master's from Columbia in English and journalism, become an expert in the economy? Well, um, it was sort of funny. I was When I got out of, of, uh, of journalism school, went down to uh, Florida where all the newspaper jobs were. And it's hard for many people who are listening to this to remember, but there weren't um, business sections to many um, uh to many papers then, but but beginning in the 80s, every every newspaper began to get a business section, and so there were an awful lot of jobs in in, in business and uh, in business reporting. There was a real need for it, and, and I really enjoyed sort of marrying um, the writing with with math, which I really enjoyed. And then, uh, if I could just tell you a quick anecdote, there was one day that a, a colleague of mine at the Sarasota Herald Tribune was running out to cover a uh, Memorial Day parade story, and I watched this person scrambled to go do it. And I realized that if I remained a business reporter, I would never have to cover a Memorial Day parade. <laughs> People can follow you at Steve Leisman. Final question, where can they hear your music? Oh, I play in a uh, Grateful Dead band uh, around the New York area in um, Connecticut, uh, New Jersey, New York. We're playing this uh, Saturday night uh, at American Beauty on 30th Street and 8th Avenue. If you'd like to come out and hear that. You cover it all. Steve Leisman, he is senior economics reporter for CNBC. His work available online at CNBC.com. We thank you very much for being with us. A pleasure to do it, Steve. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter. And let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.